You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open in prayer together. Father, we come to you this morning because we are hungry for the bread of life, the bread of heaven. Your word to us is sweet like honey to our mouths. It is like water to a thirsty dough. And so we hunger for it this morning, and we ask that you would feed us from your word this morning, all to the praise of your honor and precious glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a couple questions that were asked of me last week following the sermon, so I want to begin with those two questions. The first one is just a, a question of clarification. Um, I mentioned last week in talking about how Festus sort of cornered Paul into appealing to Caesar, how he had him in a corner, and he, in trying to do so, he asked Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And then I mentioned that in, in making that decision, should I go to Jerusalem or do I appeal to Caesar, the Apostle Paul had three things that he could have feared by going to Jerusalem. One of them was being assassinated on the way or killed on the way because the Jews were plotting his death. The second was getting to Jerusalem and being declared guilty, which would have resulted in his death, or getting to Jerusalem and being declared innocent, which would have resulted in his death because he would have been let go and the Jews then would have been free to kill him since he didn't have protective Roman custody. Does everybody remember that? Debbie asked me the question this week. She said, do you really think it's appropriate to say that the Apostle Paul feared death? Because that's what I said. He feared going to Jerusalem or would have feared going to Jerusalem. Is it appropriate to say that the Apostle Paul feared dying or even that he feared what might happen to him in Jerusalem? Since God had already revealed to him what his sovereign will was, just as you've testified to me at Jerusalem, so you will testify for me at Rome. The sovereign will of God was that Paul would go to Rome and not that he would die in Jerusalem. So is it really appropriate to use that? And the answer is no. I didn't mean to suggest that the Apostle Paul feared death because I certainly don't think he did at all. And I think Paul actually longed for death, right? Present here, absent with the Lord. Present with the Lord, absent from the body. Far better to depart and be with Christ than to stay on here. I think Paul actually sort of longed for shedding his body and getting to go be with the Lord. So no, I don't think he feared death. That's a bad, a bad way of using that word, wrong word. What I should have said was there were three dangers that Paul would have faced had he chosen to go to Jerusalem. That would have been a better way of saying it. Um, you can tell that when I stand up here, I don't read to you what I prepare, right? So there's always the danger that in giving to you what I have prepared, that I have something in my mind, a phrase or a word that makes sense and it's clear, and then it gets processed through that uh, little tiny processor up there, and it gets it goes out the output charge, and by the time it lands in the pew, it's kind of all covered with mud, and you really can't, sometimes you're not quite clear what I have said. Does that make sense? <laughs> probably not. I'm probably doing the whole thing all over again. By the way, when that happens, I appreciate the questions for clarification. If you hear something that you're not sure about, uh, did he really mean that? Did he really mean to say that? Um, you disagree with it? You, you think it's wrong or you think it was short-sighted or, or wrong from Scripture? I appreciate coming up and talking to me about those things because you really have one of two options. Number one, you can go home and shred me to pieces over lunch, which I know happens and it just kind of comes with the territory. Or you can call me up or come and talk to me and say, hey, did you really mean that. And I appreciate the latter. Not because I mind being 
torn to shreds over somebody's lunch. That doesn't bother me all that much. But I think that the second way of handling it is a biblical. That's what we're called to do as Christians, and I think that that's appropriate. The second question that I was asked was by Connor Curry. He came up to me after the service last week, and he said, Paul um, stood trial before Felix, and then he stood trial before Festus, and then he appealed to Nero, and then he stood trial before Agrippa, right? And I said, right. And he said, but then we get to the end of the book of Acts, and we don't read that Paul actually stood before Nero. Because there's no defense before Nero that's recorded in the end of the book of Acts. It just ends with him in Rome, but no defense before Nero. If he appealed to Caesar, then why didn't Luke tell us about what Paul's defense before Nero looked like? Why didn't he include that? Why does it just end with him in Rome? That's a, I mean, that question is way ahead of the curve. When I was that age, I didn't even know there was a book of Acts, let alone how it ended. But Connor was able to see that there's something missing in the book of Acts. And there's a reason why it's missing. And I think some of you are probably asking maybe some of the same questions, right? Why, having appealed to Caesar, does Luke not tell us about Paul's defense before Caesar? So if you stick with us to the end of the book of Acts, when we get to the end of the book of Acts, I promise you, Lord willing, and I remember, that we will deal with that issue. Because I'm actually planning to address that issue. Why is there no defense before Caesar? But for the time being, turning the book of Acts, not to the end, but to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. We're going to be looking at the second half of the chapter. The first half of the chapter of, of chapter 25 of Acts is Paul's defense before Felix. Felix, sorry, Festus. Festus took over for Felix. Festus went up to Jerusalem. The Jews asked him to hand Paul's head to them on a platter, literally, or figuratively speaking, literally. Hand Paul's head to them on a platter, and Festus said, no, you come to Caesarea, we'll put him on trial, we'll stand trial there. They did that, they came in, they made their accusations. Paul said, I'm guilt, I'm innocent of it. If I'm guilty, put me to death. If I'm innocent, release me, but don't hand me over to these men. And Paul could see that Festus was going to deliver him over to the Jews for political expediency's sake, and so Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. I want to go stand before Nero and present my case. It was his right To do that, any Roman citizen could appeal to Caesar to have his case heard in the imperial court, and that's what Paul asked for. The second half of the chapter 25 in the book of Acts is devoted to sort of preparing us for Paul's defense before Agrippa. And this would be his fourth and final official defense. The first one was before the Sanhedrin. The second one was before Felix. The third one before Festus. And the fourth one is before Agrippa. So the rest of chapter 25 sort of prepares us to hear Paul's defense before Agrippa. And there are just basically three things that happen. These are the three things we're going to cover this morning. First, Festus reviews Paul's case for Agrippa. Second, Agrippa requests to see Paul. And then third, Festus presents Paul to Agrippa. Those are the three things that happen in Luke sort of preparing us for this this massive, and I think it is the best speech in all of the book of Acts and probably the most memorable for you, in Acts chapter 26. It's the best of Paul's defenses. I love it. I can't wait to get there. But that's not why I'm taking the whole rest of the chapter this morning. You might look at it and say, man, the rest of the chapter, are you kidding me? What? Who lit a fire under you all of a sudden that you're taking a whole rest of the passage, whole rest of the chapter? That's unheard of. It really is. And it's not because I'm anxious to get to Acts chapter 26. It's not because I'm sort of tired of being in the book of Acts. I'm trying to push through to the end you're going to notice that a lot of what we cover in this chapter is review for us. 
It wasn't for Agrippa, and so as Festus sort of gives Agrippa the rundown on everything that's happened, he reviews everything. And when we went through it the first time, we looked at the details, we took our time, we saw what was going on, we sort of tore it apart, we got into it deep, and now as Festus reviews all of that, we're not going to go back and go through all of that again. So we're going to cover a lot of it in sort of a review cursory manner. So we got a lot of material to deal with this morning. Let's begin in Acts chapter 25 with verse 13. After Paul appeals to Caesar, Festus says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. The first thing we notice is how Festus reviews Paul's case for Agrippa. Beginning in verse 13, now in several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and they paid their respects to Festus. Now, the very, first, the very beginning of verse 13, notice that when it says when several days had elapsed. Festus seems to us to be the type of guy that dealt with everything quickly, right? You notice that? On the next day, on the next day, three days, he's up to Jerusalem, next day, tribunal. This is the type of guy that was handling things quickly. So why is it that we get to verse 13 and all of a sudden it seems that the, the case for Paul has just sort of hit the brakes and there are several days that are elapsing before anything is done with Paul? You know why this is? See, Paul had appealed to Caesar, but they didn't take half of a Roman cohort, 200 soldiers, and guard Paul and send him off to Rome because they had a responsibility to get Paul to Rome before Caesar alive. So they were going to dispatch a whole bunch of people. And when they did that in those days, they wouldn't just do all of that for one, soul, uh, one prisoner. They would wait until they had a bunch of prisoners that needed to be shipped at the same time. They would load them onto a boat with a bunch of Roman soldiers and they would take a large group of them to Rome. So when you read that several days have elapsed after Paul appealed to Caesar, you need to understand it was probably quite a few months. A few months, because this happened in the spring of 60 A.D., and you'll notice that when Paul gets on a ship in chapter 27, one of the very first things that they do is they look for a place to spend the winter. They're looking for a port to come into in the winter. So you're talking about a couple of months that have passed while Paul is waiting and the process is taking, they're waiting for prisoners, they're putting together this, this trip. And while Paul is waiting to be sent off to Rome, a royal couple arrive, Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice. Now, they come to pay their respects to Festus. You know, Festus has taken over for Felix. He's the new sort of governor in town. And just like Festus went down to Jerusalem to meet the people who were under him and the Jews and to get acquainted and to sort of hobnob and talk and and build friendships, Agrippa does the same thing. Agrippa was the ruler of the kingdom that was to the north, and he sort of had some oversight over Festus. And so he comes down to Caesarea, and he's there with Festus, and he's getting to know Festus, and he's spending a long time with Festus. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Agrippa, because this is an interesting character, and his whole family is an interesting family. This Agrippa that is mentioned in this passage in Acts 25 and Acts 26, his name is Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa II. Now you say, Herod, that sounds familiar. It, it probably should, should to you. Agrippa probably sounds familiar to you. And, well, the second. Yeah, he's the second. So Herod Agrippa II. From this point forward, I'm just going to refer to him as Agrippa. Now there are a lot of Herods in the New Testament, and you read through the New Testament, you start in Matthew, you notice a Herod there that tried to kill Jesus. You notice Herods, and if all the way through the Gospels, you notice Herod in the book of Acts, and you might be thinking to yourself, man, this guy lived a long time. Right? And it's four different Herods in the New Testament. Let me tell you about Agrippa's family. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who built the city of Caesarea. He built the palace that all this is taking place in. 
It was Herod the Great who was king when Jesus was born. It was Herod the Great whom the wise men stood before and said, we're looking for him who was born king of the Jews. And Herod the Great said to them, you let me know when you find him because I want to go kill, uh, worship him too. And so that was the Herod the Great. And he was the Herod that tried to kill the baby Jesus. And he was the Herod who was responsible for the murder of all the two-year-old boys in and around Bethlehem in an attempt to kill this one who had been born king of the Jews. That was Herod the Great. Now, he had a, Agrippa had a great uncle, Herod Antipas. He pops up in the Gospels. Herod Antipas was the one who killed John the Baptist, had John the Baptist beheaded. It was Herod Antipas who tried to kill Christ. In fact, on one occasion in Luke 13, a bunch of Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, you better get out of here because Herod's trying to kill you. So flee. And that's when Jesus called Herod that fox in Luke chapter 13. It was Herod Antipas who was at the trial of Jesus in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 23. And Luke says in Luke 23 that when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad to see Jesus because he had been wanting to see Him for quite a while. He had heard a lot about Jesus and was hoping to see some miracle done by Him. And it was that day that that Herod Antipas and Pilate became best friends because they could both agree that they wanted to see Jesus dead. That was Herod Antipas. That's Agrippa's great uncle. Now, Agrippa's father was Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I pops up in Acts chapter 12 when he has the apostle James martyred, killed, murdered. You remember that? And then he saw that that pleased the Jews, so he had Peter arrested and thought, well, if one's good for the money, two is good for the show, we'll get another one. So he grabbed Peter and he wanted to kill Peter as well, but the angel came and delivered Peter. And then after that, Herod Agrippa I went down to Caesarea and he walked into the Colosseum. You remember that? And all the show and the glitter and the people shouting out, Oh, the voice of a God and not of a man! And giving praise and honor to him. And Acts 12.23 says that right then an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. Do you remember that? The graphic sermon, one of my favorite. Eaten by worms and he died. That was Herod Agrippa I. That is this Agrippa's father. And now this Agrippa comes to Caesarea, by the way, the very city in which his father died a few years earlier, because this Agrippa now has taken over for his father who was worm food. And this Agrippa was trusted by Rome. In fact, the Emperor Claudius had given him the position of curator of the temple in Jerusalem. And the Emperor Claudius had given him the authority to appoint and depose of high priests. Because this Agrippa was considered an expert in all things Jewish. Jewish culture, Jewish law, Jewish history, he was an expert in all things Jewish. And so he was sort of Rome's official man on the scene who knew all about the Jews, all about their culture, their customs, their prophets, their scriptures, their feasts, their their sacrifices, all of that. He had a good handle on all of those things. Now as far as we read, anywhere in the New Testament or anywhere in history, Agrippa never married and he never had kids. He was the very last of the Herodian dynasty, the very last of Herod's dynasty. Now some of you look down at the passage and said, never married. It says that what? Agrippa came with Bernice. Well, who's Bernice? Bernice was his sister. She had actually been married to one of her uncles and her father, Agrippa I, the worm food guy, had given his 13-year-old daughter to his brother as a wife. She bore him a couple children and then he died and so she was widowed and she came to live with her brother Agrippa II. Now, word around town was, and rumor on the street was, and history confirms that this was the case, and some of you are smiling because you know I'm about ready to ruin your lunch, that Agrippa and Bernice knew each other a little too well for being brother and sister. 
You know how they say coming in second place is like kissing your sister? Agrippa didn't mind coming in second place. There was a very inappropriate relationship between Agrippa and Bernice, an incestuous relationship. Now, when the rumors started flying that this was going on, it was all over the empire, there are prophets, or not prophets, poets, Roman and Greek poets who mentioned this illicit relationship between Agrippa and Bernice. They tried to sort of put down the rumors. She went off and she married a king of Cilicia. Polemo was his name. She eventually kind of tired of that and deserted him, and she came back to her brother, double yuck. Then she, after that, she left, and she had sort of a, a short affair with Titus, a Roman general who later became emperor after Nero. But when he was about to become emperor, public opinion didn't like her, so he sort of put her out, and she came back and lived with her brother. Again, that's triple yuck. And that's the spoil your, that's the spoil your lunch part of the sermon. You would be amazed. Listen, you would be amazed at how many incestuous and inappropriate relationships like that existed within Herod's family. A lot of them. There was one daughter of one particular Herod. Her name was Herodias. She actually married two of her uncles successively. And we read about both of them in the New Testament. Mark, I think it's chapter 6, talks about her being married to Philip, and then Philip's brother, Antipas, wanted her as his wife, so she left him and married her husband's brother, her other half-uncle, and moved in with him. And it's that that got John the Baptist in trouble. Do you remember John the Baptist was saying, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias and Herod Antipas wanted him dead for that, and they ended up killing him for that. That's what got John the Baptist's head. That's what he lost his head over, was that whole relationship. This went on. Look, this is like a bunch of rednecks with purple robes on, is what they are. As the most inappropriate and disgusting group of people were the Herods that you could possibly imagine. Absolutely immoral, wicked, depraved, gross, disgusting group of people. That's that's the Herodian dynasty. So that's Agrippa and that's Bernice. And when they come down to Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus, Festus sees a grand opportunity. What's his grand opportunity? Here is King Agrippa, who is an expert in all things Jewish. And he needs to get a little bit of insight on how to deal with Paul and these Jews. And so Festus begins to lay out the case before Agrippa, lay out Paul's case and tell him everything that has happened. So look what he says, beginning in verse 14. And this is where we cover this in sort of a review type of fashion because a lot of this is is still fresh in our memories. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, "This is a man. there is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. Now, that's kind of an interesting admission by Festus. When I was at Jerusalem, the Jews were asking for a sentence of condemnation. Were they asking for a fair trial? No. When they asked for a concession against Paul, what were they asking? We just want you to declare him guilty. But Festus wasn't going to do that. Verse 16, I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. Festus kind of takes a little dig at the Jews there and kind of a little dig at Felix in front of Agrippa. Notice what he said. I told him it's not our custom to take innocent men without a trial, without proper accusations, without good procedure, and just hand them over to their accusers. Now, was Festus really interested in justice? 
We've seen the last couple weeks. He really wasn't, was he? What's he doing here? He's kind of taking a dig at at the Jews, saying to the Jews, it might be your custom to kill innocent people, but it's certainly not our custom to kill innocent people. Oh, no, we're interested in justice. We're interested in doing what's right. We're interested in proper procedure. And then he takes a little dig at Felix. Felix might have let the case linger out there for two years, but not me, Festus says. On the next day, we did this. We dealt with it swiftly. And I wanted to get justice done. Verse 18, when the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. I had Festus, when he sat down, to hear the Jewish accusers and to hear what their accusations against Paul was, what do you think was in his mind? He was expecting a certain type of accusation to be brought against the Apostle Paul. But he says here quite candidly, it wasn't the type of accusations that I was expecting. With the whole nation of the Jews in such an uproar about this guy, and since this was the only thing that the Jewish leaders wanted to talk about was getting his head, I would have expected that this guy would have been a murderer. He would have been another Barabbas. He would have been the type of man who was out raping and pillaging and stirring up everything. I would have expected the most horrendous of accusations to be raised against this guy. But Festus says the accusations weren't the type that I was expecting. Instead, you'll notice, he says, they had some minor disagreements about their law and about a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. What was the real issue? Notice how the resurrection keeps coming up in all of these trials. It's going to come up again in chapter 6. The real issue was the resurrection. Festus said, I, when I sat down and I heard the accusations, it wasn't the criminal type of stuff that I was expecting. The Jews and Paul had disagreements about the interpretation of their law, about their religion, and Paul was asserting that there was a dead man who was alive, and the Jews were asserting that dead men don't rise. It became a theological issue. And Festus is saying to himself, why are we hashing this out in a Roman court? This doesn't belong here. These are not the type of accusations that we deal with. These are disagreements about your religion. And the word that Festus used there, by the way, for religion is a word that can be used either positively of somebody honoring or giving honor and reverence to a god or gods, or it can be used negatively and translated superstition. Now, which do you think Festus meant by that? Positively or negatively? Festus is meaning it negatively. Why do I say that? Because later on, as Paul gives his defense before Agrippa, it's Festus who stands up and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Much learning has driven you mad. You've lost your marbles. You've lost it if you believe all of that religious, superstitious, hocus-pocus nonsense. He had he had absolutely no knowledge of the way, no knowledge of Christian things, no knowledge of Jewish religion. He was in no position to be able to discern what was going on amongst the Jews, which is why he says in the next verse, I was at a loss as to how to... Decide this, investigate such matters. So I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial in these matters. Now, Festus makes it sound like the reason he was offering Paul to go to Jerusalem was so he could figure out this theological dilemma. But what do we know was true? Why did he want Paul to go to Jerusalem? <laughs> Kicking him under the bus, remember? He's going to hand him over for political expediency. Get rid of him to do the Jews a favor. But here, Festus makes it sound like, well, I was trying to be impartial. I was trying to do him a favor. So I asked him if he would go to Jerusalem and stand trial and sort out all of these doctrinal and religious issues that he has with the Jews. Look at verse 21. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody and sent him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So with all of that rundown, Festus lays out Paul's case before Agrippa. He sort of gives Agrippa the review of the case. 
from the time that Festus got into office, he says, here's what's happened, here's what I've found out, here are the essential details of the case, and then the second thing I want you to notice is how Agrippa requests to see Paul. Verse 22, he says, I also would like to hear the man myself. Now, there's only one thing I want you to notice here about Festus's, or Agrippa's request. When Agrippa says, I would like to hear the man myself, those words, I would like, translated into English, are from a Greek verb that is in the imperfect tense, and it's difficult to put it into English, but basically it boils down to this. Fest, Agrippa was saying, I have for a while wanted to hear this guy. In other words, it's, it indicates to us that he had for a while, a long period of time, had a desire to hear Paul himself. Kind of like if I were to say to you, I'd like to go on a cruise. You understand that what I mean by that is not, oh, all of a sudden I just had the desire to go on a cruise. right? I would like to go on a cruise. I have actually had that desire for 10 years. We might translate it as saying, I have for a while desired to hear the Apostle Paul, to hear the man myself. Now, Agrippa is just like his great uncle, Antipas. Remember who, when he had the opportunity to hear Jesus, Luke says, he was really happy to see that Jesus was there because he had heard all of these things about him, really wanted to see him, and was hoping to see some miracle done by him. He kind of has that sort of a desire. His uncle had for a long time wanted to see Jesus. Remember his sister, Drusilla, Felix's wife? Remember I told you that was her dad was the worm food guy, Agrippa I? Drusilla, who was Felix's wife, went with Felix, sat down, and wanted Paul to speak about faith in Christ. And so Paul talked to them about self-control and righteousness and judgment to come, and he gave Drusilla the gospel there with Felix. She had a desire to hear the Apostle Paul. Maybe in those two years that Paul was in prison, and all of the communication that went on between Felix and Drusilla, and Drusilla and her husband Agrippa, that Agrippa had heard about the Apostle Paul, thought, this guy's in prison. One of these days I'd kind of like to hear him. I mean, one expert on Jewish things to another expert on Jewish things. And let's hash it out and see, let the best man win. I'd like to hear what he has to say about Jewish matters. He had for a long time wanted to hear the Apostle Paul. Now here's something that I think is interesting. It's one of these historical details that I think the Lord weaves into the context of history just to show us how awesome he is. Consider this. Agrippa I, the worm food king, Agrippa I had three children. Drusilla, Agrippa and Bernice, three children. All three were great-grandchildren of Herod the Great who tried to kill the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul gets to give the gospel to all three of them. Isn't that awesome? To the three great-grandchildren of the Herod who tried to kill the Lord Jesus. Years later, it is the Apostle of Jesus Christ who gets to share the gospel with Herod the Great's great-grandchildren. Three of them. All three of the children of Antipas or Agrippa I who killed the Apostle James and tried to kill the Apostle Peter and would have if he had given if the Lord hadn't delivered Peter. And Paul gets to share the gospel with all three of those kids. I gotta wonder if Agrippa the second, this Agrippa in Acts twenty five and twenty six was remembering in his mind when he was sixteen, seventeen years old and his father had killed James and he was trying to kill Peter. And he has, maybe he has the same sort of animosity toward the Christian faith. I don't know, but Paul's got some cards stacked against him, but here he has the opportunity to share Christ with his three kids. That I think is a beautiful point of history. Third thing I want you to notice is how Festus presents the Apostle Paul to Agrippa. Beginning in verse 23, Agrippa, Festus says to Agrippa, okay, tomorrow you're going to have your chance to hear him. We'll bring him in tomorrow. Verse 23, so on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice, 
amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So on the very next day, they have this big ceremony, and Luke says that amid all of the pomp, all of the fantasias is the word that Luke uses, it refers to a regal ceremony, this massively overblown, overdone procession, a ceremony, and you can picture the scene in your mind. I mean, after all, this is a perfect opportunity to honor the last surviving member of Herod's dynasty. Because he's entering into the palace that Herod built, in the city that Herod the Great built. And here is Herod's great-grandson coming back, and he's going to sit on what was once Herod the Great's tribunal. And he's going to sit in Herod's palace, in his courtroom, surrounded by all of these people. And Festus has this great idea. Let's take this opportunity of Paul presenting his case to honor Herod, honor the city, honor Herod's dynasty, honor Agrippa. And so they have this breathtaking sort of pompous ceremony. And you can imagine what it's like, all of these rednecks in their purple robes walking into all of these grand introductions. I would like to present to you Agrippa the second, son of Agrippa the first, son of... And you know how they did that back then. They give the whole lineage and everybody comes in and all of the commanders are there and there's music going on and everybody's crown and a scepter and he sits down on the, the podium up there. And you can imagine that Luke says all of the commanders were there, which were the, 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 the military commanders who commanded a thousand troops. The tribunes they were called, like like Lysias in Jerusalem, all of Lysias' counterparts in Caesarea were there in their full military formal dress to honor the king. This is quite a ceremony. Luke says all of the prominent men of the city were there, the city council, the mayor, the clerk, the treasurer, all the business leaders, and there would have been Jews there too who were the leaders in the synagogues because the Jews loved Agrippa. Agrippa did all kinds of nice things for the Jews, and they, they honored the whole Herodian dynasty. They liked Agrippa. He was a good man to them. They kind of saw him as a friend. And they would have been there to honor him. You can imagine this massive ceremony with all of those people. How many people do you think were there? I would have to guess a few hundred. Why would I say that? Because Agrippa and Bernice would have all of their attendants and all of their assistants and all of their administrative officials who would have come down to Caesarea for this long stay that they've had. And then you would have Festus's administrative officials and his assistants and all the prominent men of the city and all of those people are gathered together there and they're going to put on display all the glory of Rome, all of the pomp and circumstances, all of the display of power. And so all of these people are gathered there together and the Lord sends the Apostle Paul right into the midst of all the movers and shakers and the prominent men and the swingers and the hobnobbers and all the people who wield the power. Isn't that awesome providence? You know, Agrippa could have requested to see the Apostle Paul privately like Felix did, but he didn't. Let's make a show out of it. Let's get all of our friends, all of the people, make a grand ceremony, bring them all here to honor me, right? Display all of the glory of Rome. And Paul says, I'm going to give you the glory of Christ. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 26, all of the pomp and ceremony just fades into the background and the central issue becomes Jesus Christ. And so Agrippa, to honor himself brings all of these people there, and it ends up being a massive audience for the Apostle Paul to present the Gospel. All of the prominent people are there. All of the movers and shakers are there. And in walks the Apostle Paul. And I want you just for a second to picture in your mind's eye that scene. This massive auditorium, the court, the tribunal, 
all of the prominent men, all of the movers and shakers, all of the who's who, the elite, the erudite, sitting in this crowd, and Festus takes his position up there, and Agrippa takes his position, and Bernice takes her position, and everybody is ready, and it comes time to bring in the Apostle Paul. All of the ceremony is over, and a hush has fallen across the crowd, and they bring in the Apostle Paul. And in walks this man who is in chains, we find out in Acts chapter 26. He is in chains and he is chained. And you know how scenes like that go. You can hear the chains echoing in the hall chamber there and everybody is quiet as he makes his way down, probably escorted by two Roman guards, which is how they did things in those days. Two Roman guards, one on each hand, and they bring in the apostle. This, um, And you know the only physical description we have of the apostle Paul from about 100 years after his death says he was bald, short, and bow-legged. They bring in this 60-year-old man who looks worn and tattered, probably dressed politely and nicely for the occasion. They bring him into the hall. Friends, every eye would be on him. And you can imagine what would happen, can't you? You can imagine that people would kind of be man, talking over here like this to this guy and talking to the guy next to him and starting to wonder, this is the guy? Right? Some of those people there had heard good things and bad things about Paul. Some of them had their minds made up, wanted nothing to do with this guy. Others maybe were reserving judgment till they had given him a hearing. Some of them maybe secretly in that crowd were sort of pulling for him, hoping things went his way, hoping that things would he would sort of have power in the Spirit to give his defense. All of these people are gathered there to listen to this, and Paul makes his way right up in front of Agrippa there. And there was disdain in that room for him. How do I know that? Because if you're a Roman official and you have just spent, I don't know, the last 30 minutes going through all of this pomp and ceremony, you spent half the day getting ready for this big event and hobnobbing with your friends, all of this goes on, there's this big ceremony, and then they bring this little guy in, you'd be rolling your eyes saying, man, what a waste of the glory of Rome. I spent all today honoring Agrippa and we've got this big ceremony and they spoil it by bringing in this short, bald, bull-legged, 60-year-old tattered Jew, ruining the whole procession, ruining everything. What a contrast Paul is to everything that surrounds him. And he's standing there before him, and look what Festus says. Look at him. You see this man, Festus said, about whom all the Jews, Jerusalem and here, have asked me for his head. They're crying, shouting for his death. You see this man? Now, you notice how Festus does not introduce him. He doesn't introduce him by saying, King Agrippa, I would like to introduce you to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, a citizen of no insignificant city, a Jewish rabbi, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, apostle to the Gentiles, apostle of Jesus Christ. Pleased to make your acquaintance. Doesn't introduce him like that at all, does he? What does he say? You see this man? This is him. Everybody would have been saying that. This is the guy that has all the Jews upset? This is the guy that they want dead? This is the one who's at the center of the ceremony? This is the guy for whom we have called all of this overblown pomp and ceremony? This is the man? And Festus stands up and says, Do you see this man? This is public enemy number one. This is him. This is the one whom all the Jews are all upset about. This is him. Look at him. Put your eyes on him. Does he seem like he justifies all of that controversy? Paul was such a perplexing figure, wasn't he? I mean, you can just walk into the room and Festus says, this is the guy. This is the guy. Everybody's upset about him. Why are they upset about him? Nobody there could possibly explain why it is that a whole nation was so upset about him and crying for his head. So Festus says in verse 24, King Agrippa and you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both to Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. 
I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. That's his innocence verdict right there. Now, if Festus had only said that back before Paul appealed to Rome, right? But he didn't. This is his innocent verdict. It's on the heels of Paul appealing to Rome. But I found nothing in him worthy of death. He's innocent. Everybody knew he was innocent. That was beyond question. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Now you might be saying, well, why didn't you? Right? What's all this about? Why don't you just send him? I told you last week that when uh, Paul's case was no longer in Festus's hands and it went to Caesar, that presented him with a very tough dilemma. You're going to get to the heart of what his dilemma is right here, verse 26. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. My Lord meaning Caesar or the emperor. I have nothing definite to write about him to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I might have something to write. Let me tell you what this is all about. It was the duty of any governor or any court official when passing a case on from a lower court to a higher court to send a personal letter to the person to whom they were passing the case on to. And that personal letter would go with the prisoner and with all of the dossier, all of the court documents, all of the evidence would travel with the prisoner to the next highest court. Do you remember when Lysias did this back in chapter 23? He's getting rid of Paul, sending him off to, to Felix, and he writes a letter. Most excellent Felix, here's what happened in the temple and all that. Here are the accusations against him. I found nothing worthy of death. I'm sending him to you because there was a plot on his life. And he sort of gives the rundown of Paul's history. That's what Festus has to do now for Nero. He has to write a letter out describing what the accusations against the Apostle Paul are and why he's sending an innocent man to Nero to be tried. Do you see his dilemma? He has to write a letter explaining all the accusations. What are the accusations against Paul? What is the evidence? All of the court history is going to go with Paul up there. All of the documents, the verdicts, the witnesses, the specific evidence, the affidavits. When Rome, In Rome's judicial system, they were meticulous about those things. Paul had a case file probably that thick of all the evidence that was going with him to Nero. And Festus has to put his signature on it and write out what the accusations against Paul are. Now imagine for a second, he's in the trial, he's on the horns of this dilemma. He doesn't want to send Paul off for punishment because he's an innocent man and everybody knows that. And he would be, he'd be strung up for that. But he doesn't want to release Paul because that would infuriate the Jews. So he's kind of caught in between this dilemma. And then Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus thinks, man, that's my out. He appeals to Caesar. It's out of my hands. I don't have to deal with it. I don't have the dilemma to deal with anymore. So he's happy to have be rid of Paul. But then he sits down and he says, okay, I've got to write a letter to Nero explaining what the case is against Paul. Dear most excellent Caesar, uh, Mr. Emperor, uh, most uh, Nero, dear Mo- Nero, the accusations against the man in front of you are as follows. Well, sedition. Sedition. Well, that's not right because we don't have any witnesses, no examples of sedition. He's innocent of sedition. I know that. Everybody knows that. Scratch that off. Let's try sectarianism. Well, no, there's no evidence for that either. Um, let's try uh, sacrilege, defiling the temple. Well, there's no witnesses to that. I have absolutely no evidence in his dossier whatsoever that he committed that crime. What is the real issue at the heart of all of this? It is a disagreement about whether or not the dead rise. The Jews say the dead do not rise. That's the Sadducees. And Paul says the dead do rise. And the first one risen is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, whom you need to believe in. That's the issue. Now, if Festus writes that out, and he sends that to Nero, do you think Nero wants to read that? Nero has just sent Festus 
to Caesarea to replace an incompetent governor who couldn't deal with these little trivial trifling issues. And how would it look if after only a couple months in office, Nero gets a case in front of him, referred to him by a lower court, Festus, and at the top of this is an issue over Jewish theology, which should have never made it into a Roman court to begin with, and should have never been handed over to Caesar. So if Festus writes what the case really is about, it's going to look as if he's just as incompetent as Felix is. And if Festus doesn't write a letter, then it's dereliction of duty. You see that dilemma? Now you say, if Festus would have just done justice to begin with, he wouldn't have had the dilemma, would he? And so he says to Agrippa, I'm glad you're here. I'm bringing him before all of you, especially you, King Agrippa. Why King Agrippa? He's an expert in all things Jewish. Festus says, I have nothing definite to write against the prisoner. I need help filling out my letter. i got to tell Nero why I'm sending. I have to send to him an innocent man. And all of the court records show that he's innocent. What is Nero going to do with this? So Agrippa shows up and he thinks, ah, he can help me write my letter. That's what he's talking about. Verse 27. It seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. That's an understatement. seems absurd to me. That's Festus's way of saying you'd have to be out of your mind to send a case to Nero and not send with it a letter detailing his whole case. You've got to write out the letter. So here he is. Now after the investigation and after he gives his case to Agrippa, Festus is going to turn to Agrippa and say, what do I write about that? This is not going to get me in trouble with Nero. And that's how the whole case came up before Agrippa. Now I want to point something out here. It's sort of encouraging to us, I think, and very applicable in everything that we've looked at here so far. This one thing and then, and then we'll close. In this room, with all of the pomp and all of the ceremony and all of the display of the glory of Rome and all of the hobnobbers and the who's who's and the elites and the erudite and the sophisticated and the uh, the rich and the powerful and the kings and the princes and the queens and all of those people. And then you have the Apostle Paul. I want to ask you one question. Listen, this is the one question. Who in that room that we have just looked at Who in that room has had the most lasting influence over the last 2,000 years of human history? Who has had the most lasting influence? It's Paul. It's Paul. Paul has been proven by history to be the most notable, the most noble, and the most powerful man who has ever lived other than Jesus Christ because of the influence that he has had on human history. And here he's standing surrounded by all of these notable men who think that Paul should be honored to make their acquaintance and be in their presence on this day. And it's just the exact opposite that is the case, isn't it? It is they who are so honored to be in the presence of such a great man of God like the Apostle Paul. Who has had the most lasting influence on human history out of all of those people? Out of all of the people in that room, we've got three of their names. Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus. And everybody else is forgotten. But Paul is not forgotten. Friends, listen. This is important for us to remember, especially in the wake of an election, like we had this last week. It is important for us to remember that it is the Pauls of this world that God uses. It is the Pauls of the world. It's not the erudite. It's not the the big uppity-ups. It's not the people of power. God is not interested in those things. It is the Pauls of the world that God uses. And it is the men and women who are great in the eyes of the world today whom history will see to be 
pompous, arrogant, boastful fools. And it is the people who are nothing in the eyes of the world today that history will judge to be those who have shaken the foundations of human history. In that setting, in that environment, you would have never guessed that this little Jew would have been so used by God and so influential in human history. Yet it is the people like Paul that God uses. Not the people like Agrippa, not the people like Festus. Don't ever, ever for a minute think that God has to have a Christian in the White House to accomplish His will. Or Christians in Congress to accomplish His will. Or Christians on the Supreme Court to accomplish His will. He doesn't. The fulcrums of human history are not in the halls of power. They're in people like Paul. It's the Sunday school teacher and the missionary and the Awana worker. And it is the businessman and the janitor and the mechanic and the construction worker and the teacher. And it is the the husband and the housewife. It is the people who teach their children the things of God. It is the small, seemingly insignificant people of this world that God works through. And you know why that is? Because God has determined to use the foolish things of the world to confound those that are wise. And He has chosen to use the weak things of this world to confound the things that are mighty. And it's the Pauls that God uses. Not the Agrippas. Not the Bernices. Those are disposable. Friends, it's people like you and I. It's the people that God uses. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your grace to us in Christ. And we thank You for this powerful reminder of just what it is that it takes to be used by You. Thank you for your loving kindness to us, and we pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts and remind us constantly that you're in the business of using weak and seemingly insignificant vessels to accomplish great things. Thank you for who you are, and thank you that that grace is possible in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.